The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Huh. Watching Kyle's unboxing videos again? Yeah, he always finds the coolest... No way! A robot dog? Gotta ask where he got it. Or use your Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Just draw a circle around the dog on your screen, and it shows you where to buy it right in the app. Oh, I just learned a new trick. And that for once, I beat Kyle to the next big thing. Circle it, find it, with the new Galaxy S24 Ultra, and circle the search with Google. Get yours now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. King Oswald was a 7th century ruler of Northumbria. He helped establish Christianity there and became a saint after his death. And by the 12th century, he'd become an important figure in many countries, particularly Germany. Dr Johanna Dale of University College London has been researching Oswald. And for today's episode, she told our content director, Dave Musgrove, about what she's found out. Johanna, can you just introduce us to this figure, Oswald? Who was he and when was he around? Well, he's um, one of the kind of early Christian kings of Northumbria. And he's killed in battle in 642 by a Mercian king, Penda, who's a, a non-Christian, although there are actually other Christians um, in the army he fights again. But this kind of gory death sets him up um, to be one of the heroes of Bede's ecclesiastical history, which is written about 90 years after Oswald's death. And um, in, in many ways, his kind of afterlife is as interesting um, as his life. But perhaps uh, listeners would like to know a little bit about his life before we embark on on what happens later. 
Um, so Oswald's born in 603 or 604. We're not entirely sure. And his father is king of um, one of the North, two Northumbrian kingdoms. But his father is then killed by his uncle and Oswald is exiled to Ireland for over um, a decade. And while he's in Ireland, he actually converts to Christianity. I um, mean, he's probably baptised on the island of Iona. Um, then his uncle dies and two other kings have a very short lived uh, reign of a year. And Oswald comes back to Northumbria in about in 634 um, and he fights a um, battle against a heathen king, Cadwalla, and he defeats Cadwalla at the Battle of Heavenfield, as it becomes known. And uh, at this point, he kind of takes control over all of Northumbria. And he's set up here as a great Christian hero because he's said to have erected a cross on the battlefield of Heavenfield before he defeats um, Cadwalla. So indeed, he's presented as kind of Northumbrian um, Constantine. And then he sets about Christianizing Northumbria. So he's been in Ireland and he sends to Iona for a bishop to help him Christianize his new kingdom. And it's in that kind of role as Christianizer uh, of the Northumbrian kingdoms um, that we learn about him in Bede, which is our main source for Oswald's life. So it's, it's, it's quite a complicated time, this, and a time when I, I guess sources aren't hugely reliable. We haven't got that much to go on. You mentioned Bede there. What Do we know, on, on what basis does Oswald become a saint? Well, <laughs> that's a tricky that's a tricky one. Um, so I've mentioned that on there are kind of Oswald's reign is kind of bookended by two battles. This first one at Heavenfield, where he puts up um, the cross, and then he dies in battle in six four two on the fifth of August, um, when he's killed by an army which includes the um, pagan ruler Penda, and. Because Pender's not a Christian, that kind of opens up the possibility for Oswald to become a martyr saint. But interestingly, Bede never actually describes him as a martyr saint, and it's kind of later tradition that tends to turn this into a bit more of a martyr's death. I think for Bede, Bede wants to frame him as this wonderful Christianising king of Northumbria. He's absolutely central to Bede's story about Christianity in England, and particularly in, in northern England, which is you know, the region that Bede really cares about. But, you know, he's a problematic uh, figure. Kings don't make easy saints because kings want to rule and they fight and saints are aesthetic and dedicated to God. So there's lots of contradictions in the story that we um, that we find in Bede. Um, but the, what happens after this period is that Christianity obviously spreads and, and, and takes root properly uh, for, throughout, uh, throughout, throughout the British Isles. Um, and we get lots of these cults of saints uh, growing up and they become uh, more or less important. Um, when does the cult of Oswald become significant? Well, it, it is actually significant from the very beginning. And um, when Oswald's killed on the battlefield... Pender dismembers his body um, and he puts his head and arms on stakes on the battlefield. And this subsequently becomes important to the cult, as I'll come back to in just a second. Um, but quite interestingly, it seems that there's popular devotion to Oswald quite quickly, so not mediated through churchmen, because we know that these open-air sites of the battle become important cult sites. So people go to 
the battle site um, of Heavenfield, the one at the start of his reign in 634, and they take splinters from the cross that he erected there and moss that grew on the cross. um, Bede tells us the moss healed a a monk's arm when he'd broken it. But it sounds like people are going to these outside sites where he dies and his blood falls to the ground. Um, People go there. The, The first story Bede tells us about a miracle is a horse goes there with a person's riding the horse and the horse has colic and gets down and starts writhing on the ground. And where it rolls on the spot that Oswald died, it suddenly springs back up again and it's absolutely fine. Um, and then people start digging a hole where, where Oswald's died because the dust has healing properties as well. And so to, to begin with, it seems these are kind of outside miracles happening and it has a popular aspect, but this seems to quite quickly become more mediated by Churchman and the fact that Oswald's body was dismembered on the battlefield is key to this because it means rather than him being buried in one specific place, his the, his kind of bodily remains are taken to several different sites. So you quickly have not just one site where Oswald's venerated, but several. So his um, head and arms and hands were retrieved from this battlefield about a year later by his brother Oswy, who succeeds him as king, and. The head is taken to Lindisfarne and enshrined there. And Lindisfarne was um, the bishopric founded by Oswald's bishop, Aidan. So it's sent to Lindisfarne. And his arm is sent to Bamber, which is another royal city in Northumberland. And then about 50 years later, the rest of his body, B doesn't tell us where this has been uh, in the in the intermediate time, is taken to Bardney in um, Lincolnshire because Oswald's niece, I think it is, Ostrith, has married the king of Mercia. So we very quickly get multiple sites where Oswald's an important kind of part of elite veneration. And I think that's very key to understanding how it becomes so important quite quickly, actually. Um, and so he's he becomes quite important in a, in a couple of places, doesn't he? Durham and, and Peterborough are the areas where, are the, are the, are the two centres where he's he's particularly venerated. Um, is that right? And when does when does that start to to happen? So Durham and Peterborough actually um, both a few centuries later they become important, and it's because of this head that was on Lindisfarne and the arm that was at Bamba, because the um, monks of Lindisfarne as is, have to flee the island because of Viking attacks. The community spends some time at Chesterless Street, and then it ends up in. Um, Durham. And when they flee Lindisfarne, they take with them the body of St Cuthbert, he's another Lindisfarne bishop, um, and also Oswald's head, although there are stories that Oswald's head might have been somewhere else in in the intermediate time. Um, But in 1104, when the monks who are now based in Durham open Cuthbert's cathedral, they find Oswald's head um, inside it at Durham. So Cuthbert's body with Oswald's head, and you actually start to find this iconography where the bishop Cuthbert is shown holding Oswald's head as a kind of attribute in the way saints hold attributes in uh, in iconography. Um, and because Durham kind of traced the history of their community back to this original community on Lindisfarne, and because Oswald gave Lindisfarne to Bishop Aidan to found that community, Oswald's very important in the kind of history of the community at Durham. And that's really why they um, care about him, I think, that the twin, well, there's a kind of three figures at Durham who are very important, particularly Cuthbert, but also 
Bishop Aidan and Oswald are part of this. And of course, you know, Durham is in this northern region where Oswald was an important historical figure. Peterborough is a little bit different um, because Oswald isn't really important where Peterborough was in the in the Fenlands. Um, but Peterborough don't have that many kind of Premier League, if you like, saints of their own. It's an old monastery, Peterborough, but it's also destroyed by the Vikings and then rebuilt. And I think when it's rebuilt, they're kind of on the lookout for a, a kind of top league saint to add prestige to their monastery. Um, Bamba's gone into a bit of a decline and the Peterborough monks use this as an excuse, essentially, to steal Oswald's right arm from Bamba and take it to Peterborough. Um, and Oswald's right arm is particularly important because, yes, it was one of these things that was staked on the battlefield. But Bede tells us a story about um, Oswald and his Bishop Aidan. They're at an Easter feast. And this is part of Bede kind of painting Oswald as a very Christian king. They're at an Easter feast. And um, Oswald is so overcome with pity for the poor who are begging outside that he doesn't just distribute food to them. He also breaks up the kind of silver platter on which the food's been presented and distributes that to the poor too, at which point Bishop Aidan reaches out and touches Oswald's right arm and says, let this arm never rot. And Bede tells us that it did never rot and it wasn't rotten at Bamberg and it's also not rotten at Peterborough. So it's not just that it's Oswald's arm, it's that it's a miraculous um not not arm that hasn't rotted. So I've kind of uh, I've forced you along uh, a bit in the story there with my Durham and Peterborough question. Perhaps we ought to just backtrack just a little bit there. But so by that point, by the early what are we talking here? Early eleventh? Uh, no, early early twelfth century. We're talking here with, with Durham and, and Peterborough. What who, um, who's got who's got which bits of body at that point? Well, see, <laughs> you're smiling, but this is um, this causes people difficulty. Peterborough's claim to have Oswald's right arm. So William of Malmesbury, for example, writing in the 12th century, he, he says something along the lines of, people like to make these lists of what they call saints' resting places, so where relics of particular saints are. And when William of Malmesbury is talking about Oswald, he says, well, mm, some people say it's at Peterborough, but I'm not going to kind of write that because I haven't seen it, so I don't believe it. Although then he puts as an aside, I do believe it's incorrupt, I'm saying... I don't believe that it's necessarily in Peterborough. Um, so, yes, there's confusion. Um, there's confusion at the time. But it's probably... The, the arms probably stolen from Bamba sometime just before the conquest. And by the time of the Norman conquest, so by 1066, Oswald's an extremely popular saint, not just in these um, few places that we've mentioned where there are relics, kind of these major relics of him. At, at one point, his body from Bardney in Lincolnshire was actually translated to Gloucester. That was in 909. So that gives him a kind of status in, towards the southwest, where, which you might not have expected of a Northumbrian king. Um, but his feast is found very widely in in calendars. And um, Elfrich, for example, has written uh, an old English life of Oswald as part of his lives of the saints in the late 10th century. So he's a very popular saint all across England, really, when um, the Peterborough monks move his arm from Bamba. 
and this and it's probably worth saying that you know this this moving of, of uh, bits of of saints is not it's not a, an unusual thing. I think you know relics were transferred and translated quite a lot in this period between institutions. I think um, you, you'll 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 uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at the uh, around the turn of the millennium there was a lot of movement of of, uh, of relics bones, um, possibly for um, eschatological millennial fears. And but I think you know quite a lot of of, of that sort of thing went on then. So it's, this isn't some some crazy um, out of uh, out of kilter thing, is it? It's not completely crazy or out of kilter. No, I think the way um, Oswald's body is immediately broken up on the battlefield is quite significant in times of spreading the cult in that early period. And there are also kind of arguments against taking saints' bodies apart, particularly um, in Rome, because. Rome, um, the popes are kind of worried about the Roman martyrs, all their tombs being pillaged and relics sent everywhere. So it's not entirely a straightforward um, thing to move uh, to move relics around, although it definitely does happen. And relics being stolen um, happens. The Peter Monk stealing Oswald's right arm is a very high profile um, example. But yes, it's not it's not unknown of definitely. So just um, one thing to, to pick on before we move on too far. So we've, we've sort of leapt um, uh, beyond the Norman conquest, and, and but Oswald would have been, I, I don't know, would he have been seen as a sort of an English saint uh, and whether uh, the Normans would have had any issues with that. Would I, is it, am I right in thinking that, that uh, these, these sort of pre-Norman saints got a little bit sidelined after 1066 in, in favour of, of uh, more uh, Normanized ones? Well, people do make that argument, and I think there are probably some examples where you could show that was the case. But actually, I think quite soon the Normans want to kind of legitimise their rule and um, kind of link themselves to the pre-conquest past, and particularly a kind of hero like um, like Oswald, actually. So you... You soon find um, Norman kings being interested in figures like Oswald. Also, Edmund, another um, pre-conquest saint who dies at the hands of non-believers. And um, you find, for example, we have a 12th century copy um, of the Lauds Regii, which is a kind of liturgical acclamation which was sung to the monarch on his coronation and other particularly significant occasions. And Oswald is one of the saints invoked for the king in that, as was Edmund, which was why I mentioned him. So these king, these kind of pre-conquest kings actually provide kind of legitimacy to the, to the Normans. They're not just trying to kind of import uh, culture from outside, but also to kind of justify and connect themselves to what went before. And if you take um, King Henry I, for example, he um, is crowned on Oswald's feast day. And of course, there's some um, political expediency here because his brother, William Rufus, of course, is killed in the New Forest and it is a bit of a power grab. But by being crowned on Oswald's feast day, he kind of makes Oswald to be a bit of a model for his kingship. And Henry I has also married Matilda of Scotland, who is connected to these pre-conquest royal families. So it's kind of actually melding the Norman and the kind of pre-conquest history together. Um, so it's so a long way of saying, I think some cults definitely are suppressed, but others 
fit with what the Normans want to do. And St. King's, like Oswald and Edmund, fit with kind of their image and what they want to what they want to do. Thanks. That's 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 a very interesting answer. So um so it, it, Oswald is a is a is a kind of a royal favourite saint by well, by the early 12th century, you're saying there if we if we're talking about Henry the First. Is he is he also popular generally? Where does he sit in the sort of the, the scheme of 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 eleventh uh, century saints and popularity? Is he up there with Cuthbert? Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I think it depends where <laughs> where you look. He's pretty he's pretty popular all across England. You, we find his feast day in calendars from all across England. There are two masses for Oswald, which are also um, quite widely spread. Um, my work's particularly been looking at Peterborough and at Durham, but I found evidence for him being quite important at St Paul's in London as well. Um, he was quite important at. York. The problem when we're trying to track saints' cults and how influential they were is we've just lost so much evidence um, from the medieval period and particularly evidence to show their kind of liturgical veneration and that side of their cult. Because, of course, in the great destruction of uh, the Reformation, liturgical books were particularly badly uh, or were particularly um you know, chosen to be destroyed, the old religion. And so you end up trying to piece together evidence from kind of scraps like liturgical calendars, church dedications, uh, all this sorts of thing. Um, but I think he's a pretty popular, pretty popular saint. He's worth me spending my time on, at least, I'd say. Of course. Can you, can you just help us out a bit here with the, with the, with the uh, phraseology here, liturgical you're talking about here and, and calendars and books? What just Can you just um, clarify that for us a bit? What do, you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So liturgy is, um, it basically means kind of communal worship. Uh, it comes from the Greek, which means work of the people. And it's how kind of people come together to um, to commemorate the, the saints and Christ's life. Um, and so this is how we can kind of most obviously see how important a saint was, was how much time was spent kind of commemorating them um, in churches. And so um, medieval calendars, which you often find at the front of books, which were made for use in the liturgy so that people kind of knew what day they're meant to celebrate or commemorate a particular uh, saint, they will have a list of the saints that are venerated in a particular place through this calendar. And Oswald, you often find as a saint who's written in red. And of course, we still have that expression, a red letter day is a particularly important day. So a saint whose name is entered in a calendar in red is a particularly important saint to a community. We also have a problem, though, that lots of these medieval books for use in the liturgy, we, they might survive, but we don't necessarily know where they originally were. So people can try and kind of locate these books based on the saints that you find in a calendar. Um, but that's not a particularly exact science either, which can make tracking things very difficult. Another sign, which is kind of a sign in some ways of more popular devotion, because you know parish churches are more open than monastic communities, is looking at what churches were dedicated to Oswald. But it can also be very difficult to know at what time a church dedication the church might be old but dedications can change over time so a church that's now a St Oswald's church might not have been a St Oswald's church in say the 11th century so the evidence that one has is very kind of fragmentary and you have to just kind of weave as much of it together as you can really to come up with a fuller picture. 
Okay. Um, sounds like I asked you a pretty complicated question there. So, so, so thanks for distilling it for us. Um, so, uh, so that's really interesting. So we've got this, this figure who's, uh, you know, started off as a Northumbrian king, um, fighting um, pagans, becomes a, a, an important cult figure. But then the story gets gets really interesting and, and maybe kind of weird for, for some listeners who aren't familiar with this, because um, he becomes an important figure beyond beyond uh, England and Britain. T- tell us what happens. Yeah, so um, Bede already tells us um, that Oswald's fame has spread overseas to Ireland and to Germany. So this can be explained by the fact, as, as I mentioned already, Oswald had spent that time in exile in Ireland and he's very linked to the um, Irish church. And there's a kind of network of missionaries which go from Ireland to Northumbria into Frisia and down into Germany. So already in the 8th century, Oswald is known in northern Germany. And actually the great... Um, Bishop of the Frisians, as he's known, Willibrod is a Northumbrian who claims to himself have a splinter of the stake on which Oswald's head was impaled in the battlefield. So it's already in um, on the continent in a very early from a very early period, but it doesn't seem to be highly a highly influential um, cult. But bit by bit, it gets more. Um, but it kind of becomes more important. And to me, um, I'm particularly interested in, in links between England and Germany. And what seems to be very important in taking this kind of latent interest in Oswald in Germany and really making it more prominent are three marriage alliances, which take place over three different centuries. And I think this shows two things. Um, one is the real important role of women in cultural transmission in the medieval period, which sometimes goes under the radar. Um, and the second is kind of how deep-seated and long-standing these links between England and Germany are. That's kind of each century, there's another one that um, makes a difference. So the first marriage is between Edith, who was the daughter of Edward the Elder, of Wessex and the half-sister of King Athelstan. And she marries the great Saxon ruler Otto I, so he becomes the emperor. Um, They marry in 929 or 930. And this Edith is described in a German chronicle that mentions this marriage as being of the stock of blessed King Oswald. So she's kind of lauded for her connection to Oswald in this German chronicle, which is quite um, interesting, I think. Then the second marriage um, is Judith, who was the widow of Tostig of Northumbria. So we're back to 1066 fame. He's died at Stamford Bridge. And she remarries in 1071, a very powerful German prince called Welf IV of Bavaria. And we know that Judith had been very interested in the community at Durham and the Northern Saints when she'd been in Northumbria. And when she dies, she leads to the monastery of Weingarten, which her um, husband, Welf, founded some relics of Oswald. She she leaves a a lavish endowment, including some beautiful books, which are now in the um, Pierbont Morgan Library in New York. And the final marriage has another... um, Valf Link. And this is Henry II of England's daughter, Matilda. 
And she marries Henry the Lion, who's another Welf, and he's basically the most powerful prince uh, in Germany. And also connected to this monastery in the south of Weingarten. And then 1182, the relics that Judith had given to Weingarten are actually moved to be buried beside um, the burial vault of the founder. And the church is rededicated in 1217 to the Holy Cross, the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Martin and St. Oswald. So here he is as the kind of dedicatee of a really high profile um, religious foundation in southern Germany. And it's from there, really, that his cult kind of really spreads across the south, I'd say. And so those those three women you've talked about are they are they the key figures in in the dissemination of of uh, of that of, of Oswald's um, significance from uh, from England over to Germany or, or would it would it have happened anyway or were they just like the you know the the, the key figures in 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 getting the, the 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 story and the relics over there? I think they're very key figures in spreading the cult amongst kind of the elite within the. German-speaking regions in Europe. And we can see the kind of programme of patronage in which Oswald uh, features as well. So if we take um, Henry the Lion and Matilda of England, so this is Henry II of England's uh, daughter, there, again, the evidence is slightly um, fragmentary, but there are two relics, reliquies, and reliquies are kind of containers for keeping relics in um, that are associated with Hildesheim, which is uh, a monastery in northern Germany in the kind of within the power base of Henry the Lion. Um, one is a, he- a head reliquary of Oswald, which is an amazing kind of thing made out of precious metal and jewels. And the other is uh, an, a cross which is now in the Louvre which also has Oswald on it. And these are extremely high status and expensive uh, things. And you only invest that kind of money in producing things like this if something is really important to you. And I think it's the fact that it becomes so important to this kind of elite group of people. It links them back to the kind of prestige, which is the link to England gives them because for Henry the Lion marrying the King of England's daughter is a real mark of prestige. Um, so it just really, really means that in that elite circle, as well, is really very significant. And I don't think the way the cult later spreads would have been possible without that kind of impetus coming um, from, from where it does into Germany. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. I feel good. Dad, are you singing to your cereal? Yes, I am. Like I knew that I would. No, a dance too? Come on, Ava. Silk almond milk. Starts the morning on a high note. Yow! Songs, dances, and dad jokes. So good. So good. I got you. 
Mm. Silk almond milk. With calcium, vitamins A, D, and E. Feel plenty good. Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. For the Medicals, what says they sleep with a bucket of water by the bed in case they feel randy, they have to put their feet in the water. And you just think a chaste marriage, like, you know, that's kind of a crazy thing. So I think if um, if our listeners have sort of uh, are familiar with this period, they probably know about these sort of elite level marriages and the fact that uh, that uh, the upper echelons of society um, that that was going on. But um, it, it might be a bit more surprising to to see such sort of clear links between um, England and Germany as as in, in as as two places which. Kind of, they don't really intersect very much in uh, in other ways in the way that we're, we're taught about history. I mean, we see England and Normandy, we know about England and Scandinavia and the Vikings, but England and Germany is kind of it's a bit of a disconnect, I think. So, well, for 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 for, for, for a lot of people, I'm sure. But what? So, what's is there something specific? Was there a particular reason why why there were there were these links between England and Germany in this period? Well, I think. Um... I tried to think how I can answer this in a not too too roundabout way. There are always links between um, England and Germany. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you from Essex, which is the old kingdom of the East Saxons, and of course the other Saxons are across uh, across the sea in northern Germany. Um, and we we see, we saw this link between the Northumbrians um, going in to Christianize Germany, and there's lots of going backwards and, and forth actually in English kind of history because we're so focused on 1066 and Norman links and links with France. I think links with Germany quite often tend to be obscured. And one of the things that I rejoice about actually with Oswald's cult is the French seem to have been completely immune to his charms. And so we're so used to this Anglo-French kind of approach to see Oswald who, you know, the French just don't care about at all, but becomes really big in Germany, I think is a quite a good way of making us think differently about those um, about those preconceptions. But I mean, the German ruler, especially once they're crowned um, emperors, they're extremely prestigious rulers. Um, and, you know, Henry II fancies himself as an extremely prestigious ruler. So it's not really a surprise, I don't think, to find this kind of diplomacy um, between the two, between the two uh, rulers. Um, so we've got the his uh, his importance now is kind of established in uh, in southern Germany and, and Austria. So we're into the like the twelfth thirteenth century by now around by then, um, and then something something else happens. Something something further happens in in the way he's uh, understood. So it's it, again it gets a little bit a little bit curious. What, what what goes on? Yeah, I think the next step is is curious. Perhaps that's just you know, from my background as a historian. Um, but Oswald somehow makes the leap from being this figure that the kind of elite can use to show their connection to a prestigious 
prestigious English monarchy um, to being a hugely popular saint. I mean, I, I think I'm kind of more keen on Oswald than the average person, but I still find it quite difficult to understand quite how he becomes so important to kind of rural peasants in Alpine, um, Alpine communities. It, it seems to be that where we can find evidence of popular devotion which is mostly in southern Germany and in modern-day Austria and Switzerland, it links very roughly with the kind of areas where the Welf family have power. So it could be that by kind of, you know, caring about Oswald, it's showing a connection to this kind of elite religion in some way still. Um, But the cult also starts to change how it's remembered. So, yes, we find lots of church dedications to Oswald, um, and there's something still like six Austrian villages that are named St. Oswald, which is kind of quite staggering to think these Alpine villages are named after a 7th century king of Northumbria. Um, And we find still copies of Bede's ecclesiastical history in southern Germany, which are showing interest in Oswald in a kind of way which is, you know, what you expect to find when you're looking at these kind of cults. But he makes a leap, and the leap seems to be linked to a change of language, which is why I think the kind of elite popular um, is an interesting way to think about it, because he he stops being just commemorated in Latin, and he starts being commemorated in the vernacular, which at the time is Middle High German. And there's a whole series of legends, and there are different kind of it's all really the same legend but there are lots of different versions of it and Oswald has become completely disconnected from the historical figure he's no longer a king of Northumbria he's a mostly described as a king of England but in some of these um manuscripts he's become a king of Norway which is presumably a kind of mistake from Northumbria to Norway which is understandable one time we find him as king of the Tyrol in a text and instead of kind of having the the life as it's sketched out in Bede from battle to battle with Christianization in between, um, the main aim of these stories is that Oswald needs a wife and has to go on a journey to find a wife from a foreign land. Um, and he can't do this himself. He needs a talking raven to do it for him. So it's it becomes really a completely different story. It's quite difficult to explain i think how it comes to be <laughs> so so hang on where's where does this raven appear from where how do, what, what there, there must be some story there well <laughs> the raven has occupied um a lot of people's kind of brain time and i don't think anyone's come up with a good solution i should say as well that there's a there's a it's difficult to explain what's happening here but i think the difficulty has been made worse um by the way scholars have looked at it because um, because it's a, a vernacular German um, text and most historians and archaeologists don't have the kind of l- linguistic abilities to work with it, his has mostly been studied by literary scholars who ask quite different questions than the kind of questions I would ask um, about a text. So I think in some ways the two different disciplines have made this all seem kind of further away from the, the two things seem further away from each other than they are. And what I kind of hope I'll be able to do eventually is to show how actually um, this story does fit more closely with what we know of his more traditional um, veneration. But where does the raven come from? Well, 
there's a kind of flippant answer to that, which is Oswald's own court, because the um, the story actually describes um, the raven as being Oswald's pet raven. And so Oswald's court decide he needs to go and find a wife. And a pilgrim suggests, a pilgrim who happens to be visiting the court, suggests that Oswald's raven would make the ideal messenger. And um, Oswald says, but my raven which she's known for 12 years, how's my raven going to do it? And then the raven suddenly, after 12 years, is able to talk um, and becomes the messenger. How a raven comes into the story, who knows, really. Um, In the 12th century, in Durham, a monk called Reginald wrote a Latin life of Oswald, in which there is a passing mention of a raven, um, Reginald kind of builds on Bede's account of Oswald. And he says, if you remember, I said that the arm and the head were impaled on the battlefield. And Reginald says that a raven came and picked up the right arm and where he dropped it, uh, a healing spring grew up. But that's that's it. That's the only mention of a raven. And personally, I just don't think that you can use that to explain why there's a raven in the German stories because... We only know of two copies of Reginald of Durham's texts about Oswald. And neither of them seem to ever have left Durham until the Reformation. So the idea that these would have been known somewhere in southern Germany where this other tale is um, put together doesn't seem particularly plausible to me. But yes, it's difficult to know why the raven comes uh, the, the, am I right in thinking that it, it becomes a, a somewhat comedic story in a way? Well, certainly. So um, there are different versions and there are kind of shorter versions and longer versions. They all have the raven in. Um, but in the longest version, which is um, called the Munich Oswald, and it's called the Munich Oswald only because um, the kind of best preserved manuscript of it is in a library in Munich. Um, in this longest version, the raven is quite a comic figure, and I have to say, <laughs> I really like him. So when when uh, it's said that he can talk, he's at the top of a tall post or something, and he basically kind of refuses to come down until he's been kind of begged a bit. Um, he, he often refuses to do things until he's had food, which I kind of really empathise with. Um, he gets quite sulky and kind of refuses to pass on messages until he's been until he's been fed. Um, so he, he kind of, in, in the Munichos world, he kind of steals the show for quite a lot of it, um, which then begs the question, you know, which again, nobody's really come up with a particularly good answer with yet, I don't think, which is, you know, how this story, you know, what it's doing and how it relates to the kind of Oswald's cult, because he becomes almost kind of sidelined in some parts of the, some parts of the story. Um, right, so um, sort of, uh, wrapping up a bit and, and trying to look at this in the round. So it's a really interesting story, and it's fascinating how uh, how this this cult moves from uh, from England to to the continent and and, uh, and all that we've talked about. I just wonder. Obviously, you've studied this quite a lot. Do you have any reflections? Does it make you offer any uh, any thoughts on on um, bigger themes in uh, early medieval or medieval religion and attitude to saints? Does it tell us anything uh, bigger that we ought to sort of bear in mind? Um, well, we, we've already touched on the um, Anglo-German connections, which is something that's um, 
very important to me. I obviously sound like a very English person, but my um, first name, Johanna, is a is a German one um, because my grandmother was German. And, um, and so I'm particularly interested in those links. And I think they're something that are often um, overlooked. More broadly, what I'm particularly interested in um, with Oswald isn't just the... Um, the kind of fun fun stories of the raven, uh, etc. But what I want to try and the way I'm trying to explain this kind of spread is to look more closely actually at that word that we used before, the liturgy, and this kind of liturgical um, commemoration of the saint. Because this is what's happening all across England and into to Germany. And for me, it makes much more sense rather than trying to link... Um, this vernacular German story to a 12th century text written in Durham, it makes much more sense to try and link it into how people are celebrating and remembering Oswald in the area. And just to give you an example, which I I hope doesn't end up being um, too technical, one of the fun things in the Munich Oswald, which is basically a bridal quest, so the raven goes to a foreign land, um, finds the princess, her father doesn't want to let her out of the castle, the raven flies back. Oswald goes and um, they manage to get her to escape for a mixture of kind of magical animals and miracles. Um, and then they get then they get married. Um, and then the marriage must be chaste. It's a chaste marriage. And it, for the music, Oswald says they sleep with a bucket of water by the bed in case they feel randy. They have to put their feet in the water. And you just think a chaste marriage... like. You know, that's kind of a crazy thing. And, you know, we know the historical Oswald had had a son. Although, again, Reginald of Durham actually brings in the idea of the marriage being chaste, but only after Oswald's had a son, because, of course, a king needs a king needs to have an heir. But to me, when you look at the um, way that Oswald's commemorated and you can see the different readings for his feast day the gospel that's spoken on um oswald's feast day is from luke 14 26 and it's the passage that says that if any man comes to me and doesn't renounce his father his mother his wife or his children he cannot be my disciple so you actually have in the kind of religious commemoration of this saint this idea that you have to reject your wife to follow him and I think thinking more about the way that the religious and the kind of popular literary manifestation manifested themselves or interacted might help us better understand what's going on really. Um, finally what, why why now is a, is a good time to be thinking about Oswald? Um, uh, obviously you're researching him and, and thinking about him, but but for, for for everyone else, is there a is there a particular reason why it's uh, it's timely to to be uh, making note of him? Well, I think it's always timely to be uh, making note of Oswald. Um, but I have been working with some uh, colleagues on uh, a new animation about Oswald and his talking raven, um, which is going to be released on the 12th of November as part of the Being Human Festival, which is a um, a big national festival celebrating. The humanities. Um, this is something I worked on with a colleague of mine who's a literary scholar at King's College London, Sarah Bowden, uh, and several um, creative practitioners that we've been working together with, um, Hazel Gould and uh, Sinead O'Neill and Hannah Saunders and our amazing animator, Charlie uh, Minion. And so everybody should um, 
tune in to watch this. Um, it will be available on the Peterborough Cathedral website. And once it's launched, it will be, will be out there forever. But hopefully, if you've <laughs> managed to get to the end of me talking about the links between uh, England and Germany, um, you might appreciate a bit more what we've tried to do in this animation. Because Peterborough was such an important um, part of the cult of Oswald in England, we've used imagery from a manuscript from Peterborough, the Peterborough Bistry, which is a kind of manuscript containing images of animals to animate this German story. And it's a very deliberate bringing together of those English and German materials as a way to try and make people start to think a little bit differently uh, about those two different traditions. Um, and also because Peterborough, it's a way that Peterborough is connected to places um, in Europe as well. And as all these churches sprung up in southern Germany. Um, a church that's dedicated to Oswald, well, all, all churches want some relics and they particularly want relics of the saint they're dedicated to. And so um, some of these German churches then kind of set about trying to acquire relics. And we know that in 1481, a newly founded church in Zug in modern day Switzerland, which was founded to Oswald, they actually sent to Peterborough for some relics um, for their new foundation. And so Again, you can see the kind of connections, and that's something that we've yeah, tried to show in this animation. Um, I said finally, but there's a couple. A couple. Did um, am I right to think that there was uh, there was more than one Oswald's head um, uh, going round in in relics? I mean, it's quite often the case that uh, that saints bits of saints were duplicated in uh, in churches. Did we did we get to a point where there were quite a few Oswald heads in in different institutions? There are at least four, <laughs> at least four Oswald heads. I think we can be pretty confident that if any of them. Are- or Oswald's head, it's the one in Durham, um, which has been examined and kind of shown to have the wound of somebody that might have died in battle, um, whereas there's no kind of convincing lineage for other claimants, which are which are all continental, though, and which show, again, that kind of importance of the continental uh, cult. So thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. That was Johanna Dale. You can find her website about St Oswald at oswaldusrex.co.uk. And if you'd like to see the Peter Brick Cathedral animations about Oswald and his raven, which are part of the 2020 Being Human Festival, which runs from the 12th to the 22nd of November, go to peterboroughcathedral.org.uk and search for Oswald's raven. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tomorrow you can hear Bernard Cornwell discussing the final book in his Last Kingdom series.